thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight, we're going to start to look more and more at the priesthood. The introductory chapters, chapter 1 through 7 of Leviticus, is focused mainly on what the sacrifices must be offered and what priests should do in order to make sure that the sacrifice is offered appropriately. Now that this is in place, the next task in Leviticus is to establish the priesthood, because up to this point, the priesthood has not yet been established. In Exodus, God told Moses to anoint Aaron, to consecrate him, but it didn't take place in Exodus. Um, in Exodus, you, have, you had a lot, you will do, and they did. So you will erect a tabernacle, they erected the tabernacle. You will build a tent, they build a tent. A lot of that happened, but when God told Moses, you're going to consecrate Aaron, that didn't happen in Exodus. It is happening now. And there is a reason for it. Because first the tent had to be erected. Then God had to consecrate it. Then God had to explain to them how he wanted them to worship. And what they were supposed to offer. What kind of sacrifice to make. And then that this has happened now. He is going to get into the details of the priesthood. Right? So, remember, scripture is a book that is not complete. It's not a complete book. We have no record in Scripture about how Moses felt. We have no record in Scripture about the childhood of Jesus. It's not a complete book. It's never, it was never meant to be a complete book. Scripture teaches us one thing and one thing only. How is God looking at things? The, the, the beauty, the treasure in Scripture is that it teaches us to see things the way God sees them, not the way we see them. Therefore, it teaches us the way to heaven. On its own is not sufficient. It's not sufficient, right? Because on its own, we would be like Satan. Satan was created with the fullness of knowledge. He knew. He knew God. I mean, he didn't know the Trinity. He didn't behold the Trinity. He didn't know that God was one God and um, one God, three persons. Right? That was revealed by Christ. But he knew God. And then, as Scripture was developed and revealed, he knew it by heart. He quotes from it when he tempts our Lord. He quotes from it. Scripture says. It's written. Right? 
And no problem quoting scripture. What good does it serve him? So it's not enough. What you need is the grace that goes with it. It's the grace, right? To apply it, to live it, you need God's grace. But nevertheless, it's a treasure. Because as we meditate and contemplate scripture, little by little, what is revealed in scripture is the face of Christ. St. Jerome, scripture is the face of Christ. You see Jesus through the scripture. So, why is it, again, that if... So, therefore, when we read the, the Pentateuch, and the reason why we study the Pentateuch is to help us prepare for the study of the Gospel. Because one of our problems today that we're facing, all of us collectively, is that our mindset and our cultural background is set against Scripture. Right? It's set against Scripture. We've become very sensitive people. We've become politically correct. We've become people who want to, everybody to be nice. And most especially, we want God to be nice. We want everybody to go to heaven just the way they are. We want it easy and quick. Everything in a culture is predisposing us to take the Gospels and adapt them to our lives instead of adapting our lives to the Gospels. Problem is that the Gospels are obscured if you do not have as a background everything else that we're studying here. Right? Salvation comes from the... Say it again. Salvation comes from the Jews. Salvation comes from the Jews. That means everything in the Jewish culture and everything that was taught from the prophets and the book of Moses was preparing them to recognize God. Hence, for us who are now living in a culture that is overbearing and pushing us away from God, we've got to, so to speak, re-enter Scripture through the Jewish door. We have to be able to re-enter Scripture through the Jewish door. And hence, I remind you again that one of the things that the devil will want to do and does consistently is try to stoke hatred in the hearts of believers towards the Jewish people and get the issues completely confused. And especially for people from the Middle East who suffer from the policies of Israel as a nation which has nothing to do with the kingdom of Israel. Hmm? It is easy to confuse one with the other and use one as an excuse to hate the Jews. Right? And I will say it again. I've said it many, many times. Uh, if anybody thinks that he can make it into heaven hating the Jews, you've got to better, better think again. Because what you're going to meet up there is a lot of Jews. Beginning with, with St. Joseph and Our Lady and Jesus. Yeah? Hating anybody for that matter, you know, black and white and yellow and orange, that kind of generalized hatred is not from God. Not from God, yeah? So, that's why we're doing all this. That's why I'm spending so much time in the Old Testament. Because we need that door today. We need that formation to predispose us the right way to understand Christ. Right? And I told you before, we have two temptations that we have to push away. And we've seen this pendulum over and over again with the person of Christ. 
On the one hand, turning Christ into a master, unapproachable, harsh, right? Being one where you absolutely need to be canonized before you can get close to him. That's called the Jansenist heresy. It was very strong. Another version of it that was lived among the Protestant is the Puritanic heresy. Right? Looking into anything that has to do with the body as being fundamentally sinful. Right? That's a, that's a temptation that was very strong in the 19th century. Now, we've taken that pendulum and we swung in the exact opposite way. Right? We now know about God's mercy much more than they did. But to the, to the, in some cases, we only know about God's mercy. So therefore, God becomes so, merc- so merciful that His mercy is absolutely meaningless. Because if you're merciful towards everybody, then you're merciful towards nobody. Do you understand? And that's what we have problems with. This is one of the, these difficult concepts that we have. A, we, today, have a hard problem with. In the 19th century, it had no issues with whatsoever. Okay? Which is kind of really interesting from my perspective, because as I speak today, I sound abrasive to a culture that is really bent on mercy. But if I could teleport myself to the 19th century, I would sound just as abrasive to a culture bent on only justice. Like Catholicism is the religion of the middle. We don't drop justice, we don't drop mercy. We need both. And if you hear me so much in, in emphasizing justice, it's because we live with a culture that is overemphasizing mercy. So I've got to have to pull the rope a little bit this way. All right? So, God, from his perspective, told them, I'm, I, I took you out of Egypt, I gave you the, 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 the commandments. When he gave them the commandments, there was no priesthood. Every firstborn could sacrifice. Therefore, every firstborn was priest, king, and prophet. Those gifts were given to the firstborn. After the golden calf, that was taken away, and a liturgical priesthood was put in place, but the royal priesthood was taken away. Right? They could not offer sacrifices any, no longer. In the Christian dispensation, we got it back. So we are part of the royal priesthood, and no longer do you need to be a firstborn. Right? Every family, every household, every head of household is a priest, king, and prophet, and those gifts have been extended to the women as well. That's the grace of Christ. So you bless your children. That's a powerful thing. Every night you should be blessing your children. It's a very powerful thing. If you're not doing it, you're missing on power that Christ won for you. Bless your children with holy water. That's part of your royal priesthood. You received wisdom to interpret the things of the time and know what is good for your family. You have authority in your house to go into your rooms and bless them and protect your house from spiritual um, uh, evil. That's part of your old priesthood. What is not ours is the liturgical priesthood. Right? That is still reserved. And Christ wanted it this way. He wanted it this way for many, many reasons that we don't, we don't have time to go into. But that is still reserved. Therefore, you can see even back then, God's focus has been mainly liturgical and moral. Those are the two things that he consider as very, very important. Above all else, the liturgy first, 
first and foremost, liturgy. Because liturgy is the language of heaven. And then from the liturgy, which becomes the fountain of grace, we receive the grace to be able to live a moral life. And the fruit of the liturgy is your morality. The way you know that you are participating in the praise of the church the right way is if you're growing in your virtues. Because one will produce the other. Like a good tree will produce good fruits. It's almost, it's almost as if it is the nature of liturgy to produce morality. You just have to let it do it to you. Yes? Now, you see how foreign these concepts are for us in this culture? This culture is insistent on you do it. It's in your power. Believe in yourself. Right? Step-by-step process to do this and then and the other. No, 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 no. It is in the nature of the liturgy to form you morally. doesn't mean you don't have work to do. You will, but you will be given what you need because that's what the liturgy does. This is why he's so insistent. So, in chapter 8 and 9, he, therefore, institute this um, uh, priesthood. Once the priesthood was instituted, the priest led the nation in its spiritual duties by teaching the laws and commandments, by offering answers to the problems of life. So, teaching the laws and commandments, offering answers to the problems of life, So we see examples of that in Deuteronomy, chapter 33, verse 9 and 10. The book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 7. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verse 18. The book of Ezekiel, chapter 7, verse 26. Examples where the priests are offering solutions for daily lives. Mediation by intercessory prayer, as well as obviously offering sacrifices. To these, the high priest added... Offering of the daily sacrifices, the morning and the evening. Entering the Holy of Holies once a year. And the oracular function where he could answer people's requests using the Urim and Thummim. Those two mysterious stones that were used to be able to give an answer as an oracle of God. Those were gifts given to the high priest to lead them. So what was the Urim and Thummim replaced by or replaced with? In the new dispensation. Pardon? Not the Eucharist, no. Not, yeah, yeah, but now, I mean, yes, the Holy Spirit is guiding this. But there is a function in a new covenant that is established by Christ, which replaces the Urim and Thummim, which is superior to it. Mm, the church, not the church, no. It is the infallibility of the Pope as well as the infallibility of the bishops when they meet with him to know and speak the truth. You understand, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, when he does that, he is speaking divinely. It is no longer a man speaking, it is God speaking. Well, that beats the Urim and Thummim. Yeah? So, the church has assurance of truth in theology and morality. The church will never teach anything that is not true in theology and morality. Yeah? So for Catholics to say, for Catholics to go every Sunday to Mass, to say, I, when it comes to 
questions of morality, I prefer to follow my own conscience. Well, when they say that, or if you hear somebody saying that, um, they're only admitting to half of the truth. The church does want you to follow your own conscience, or the dictate of the conscience, which is a much better expression. The church does want you to do that, but the church adds to this, provided that your conscience is formed according to the truth. So there is a formation of conscience according to the truth. And once your conscience is formed according to the truth, you absolutely follow it. Yeah? But if the church says contraception is a grave disorder, contraception is a grave disorder. We may not like it. We may have difficulties with it. We may have uh, challenges facing this. But we should never doubt this is the truth. God has spoken. That is the tenets of the faith. That's what he gave us. And always remember this. A thousand difficulties do not add up to one doubt. The fact that you have difficulties with the faith does not mean that automatically you should doubt. That's a trick of the devil. But logically it makes absolutely no sense. The fact that you may having challenges driving a car should not lead you to doubt that the car exists not be absurd would not be absurd the fact that you're having a challenge completing a job doesn't lead you to think that the job doesn't exist or the fact that you may have challenges with your spouse should not lead you to divorce right a thousand difficulties do not add up to one doubt okay so those are the things that were given the priest back then and they were replaced by something better. Now, I want to read this to you from the book of Malachi to see how God takes the priesthood seriously. Very seriously. In the book of Malachi, chapter 2, verse 5, the covenant with Israel is called the covenant of life and peace. Therefore, the main priestly function was designed to bring about a form of external sanctification by making the people holy before the Lord so that God could dwell with them and they with Him. It was external because it was not sanctifying grace. But God, who is all holy, was willing to put up with it. Even with the external form of holiness, provided they were faithful to an external form of holiness he was willing to dwell with them even though they could not be sanctified. If that's not mercy, I don't know what it is. If that's not forbearance, I don't know what it is. If that's not patience and humility on God's part to dwell with people who are in sin and yet dwell with them simply because they're able to follow an external form of sanctification. He was willing to dwell with them. But think about us. We may have issues with our kids. We may have issues with people we work with. We may have issues with our parents, our relatives. Think of God. He is forbearing. He is patient with us sinners. He doesn't abandon us. When we sin, he comes to our aid. He helps us even when we offend him. 
he comes and helps us. Shouldn't we therefore show the same thing to others? That's what you constantly think about if you read this book. Because God is in their midst. Despite their many failings. He doesn't abandon them. Now later on priests who would go up to Jerusalem. When they were chosen by lot to serve at the temple for two weeks. They had to have knowledge of all the sacrifices. They could have no wine. They had to trim their heads. They have to and hair washed. And they had to, to wash and appear with the proper clothing. The high priest had to have the greater knowledge since he directed all the sacrifices. And keep in mind that for them, the sacrificial process was very demanding. You had to grab animals. You had to kill the animal. You had to flay. You had to cut. You had to cook. You had to burn. You had to clean. You were barefoot. And you had to wash. Every time blood came upon you, that was a sign of uncleanness. You had to wash. And they did it. They did it. So we shouldn't complain if we have some some, um, uh, laundry to do or some dishes to wash. They did it. Israel was known in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, as the kingdoms of priests. It was a priestly kingdom. That is why later on in Samuel, God's wrath will be kindled when they asked for a king. When they wanted a king like all the other nations, his wrath was kindled. Because they didn't get it. Theirs is a kingdom of priests. And so is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is a kingdom of priests. It's a priestly kingdom. Which is, which is what the world cannot understand. They keep on treating the church like it's a company and the Pope is the CEO. Right? They keep on, that's the only perception they have of it because back then, the nation's perception of Israel was a kingdom like all the others. They could not perceive Israel as a kingdom of priests. Now, sometimes we, as the Israelites, can muddle the picture can make it hard for people to see that the church is a kingdom of priests because we act like everybody else. But that's what the church is. It's a kingdom of priests. Now, when the priests, when the priests, it's one thing for the lady to mess up. God is much more forbearing when the lady mess up. But when the priests mess up, then his wrath is kindled. And he always takes action when the priests mess up. And the action is radical. Okay, and I, I, I invite you to read the third chapter of the book of Revelation when Christ himself is talking to St. John, who is the bishop, is the bishop of all the churches that he wants to visit. St. John the Apostle is the bishop of that whole area. And he's instructing him that if these churches do not shape up, he will come and remove. He will come and remove that um, lampstand. What is the lampstand? Where do we have a lampstand in our church? In front of what? In front of the tabernacle. So when he removes the tabernacle, what is left? A Protestant church. Yeah? Now go back, read those names, and go check where those churches are. They're gone. He removed the lampstand. Here's a passage from the book of Malachi. 
chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Notice, give glory to my name. Right? Then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. So anytime you have this doubt that God doesn't curse, please go back and refer to this chapter. This is God speaking. I will curse your blessings. Alright? Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. It's a constant theme. The priest did what was wrong. Who gets rebuked? The kids. I was watching a, uh, with the kids a, um, a show on Netflix called Thou Shalt Laugh, where you have a number of comedians who are Christian, and the show for the most part is clean. There are a couple of places where I cringed, but the for most part it was clean. But in it, there's this one man who was having a whole this description of a relationship he has with his son who was 18 years old. And he said something to this effect. He says, teenagers, and I'm not going to quote him word for word, that's how he will rebuke your offspring. They will not have the grace. So you end up with a pain in, on your, in your hands because God is showing you what you're doing to him. I told you there are three Bibles. The universe, scripture, and the family. And so he teaches you in your family when you are not listening to him, Likewise, he teaches you in your family when you're listening to him. You have godly, obedient children. That's how it goes. There are no mystery to misbehaving kids. It's not like the children of this generation are worse than the children of the other generation. Those are nonsensical explanations given by people who are blinded by their own misgivings. The truth of the matter is really simple straightforward, and permanent. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. You obey God, He blesses you in your children. He blesses you with children, and He blesses you in your children. They obey you, they listen to your voice, and they grow in grace before God and men. Right? I'm quoting from the Gospel of St. Luke. When Jesus came down to Nazareth and obeyed His parents, He grew in grace before God and men. That's how He showed us how Children are supposed to grow. If you don't, read the book of Malachi. I hope you start to understand the key to some of those problems that seem without solution. You have brothers and sisters who are not in the faith. Well, don't, you, don't look at your brothers and sisters. Look at your parents. What have they done? Offer sacrifices on behalf of your parents. Read the book of Daniel. He confessed not only his sins, but the sins of all his people. He humbled himself. Well, do the same. Humble yourself, yourselves on account of your parents who did not. And then see what happens to the kids. Understand the, the, understand the battle and its technique and what you have to do in the spiritual world. Because this is what scripture teaches us about God's ways. Right here. How does he curse them? Again, I will rebuke your offspring, and this is scripture, not making that up, 
and spread dung upon your faces. The dung of your offerings, and I will put you out of my presence. So why did he chose dung, you think? What is the thing about dung? It, it stinks. Okay. What is the constant refrain when you offer a good offering with a good heart, a contrite heart to the Lord? It is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Here you go. Right? He's using the faculty of smell to talk about the reality of graces and the reality of sin. He's spreading it on their faces so that they can smell how he receives what they're doing. Yeah? And his focus is, if you did not glorify my name, how do you glorify God's name? You offer sacrifice, yes. But how, what is the, today even, how, what is the best way to glorify God's name? Keeping the commandments, thanksgiving, prayer, prayer, getting closer, the mass, the mass, the mass is the summit and source of the Christian life, the mass, there is no better way to glorify God's name than to celebrate mass, from that everything else flows, now let me be very clear, I am not suggesting that if you celebrate Mass and you ignore everything else you guys said right now, Thanksgiving, offering sacrifices, that you actually glorified God's name. Right? This is not about being a car wash Catholic. Press on the button and the Mass does everything and you're squeaky clean on the other side. No, 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 no. To, to celebrate Mass... You must be offering sacrifice. You must be contrite. You must be working on your sins. You must be tending to your brothers and sisters. All those things you bring with you to celebrate Mass. And all those things you receive back as you leave Mass so you can continue to do it. You celebrate the liturgy to tell God that you love Him. And then when you tell God that you love Him, you go out to tell your brothers and sisters that you love them. Mass is not a moment in time frozen for Sunday for one hour apart from your life. Mass is organically, organically tied to your entire life. That is a covenantal living of our life. It'd be nice if during your week you did something good for somebody, you can think, okay, I'm bringing this with me to Mass. God will be happy. You see? Mass should be for us almost Christmas in reverse. You're Santa Claus. And Jesus is the baby. And you're bringing him gifts that Sunday. All your little sacrifices, everything you did that week, you're bringing all these with you to offer to baby Jesus. You're the Magi. You just came from very far away. You're, de- you're doing him homage. That's Mass. And He, being the generous God, doesn't leave you empty-handed. He gives you from His treasures. That's Mass. That's heaven on earth. 
That's meeting God. That's entering the tent. That's a biblical living. You understand? That's the power of the liturgy. And without it, we're really beggars. We're really poor. So shall you know, he continues, that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may hold, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now that, by the way, is now transferred to all of us. We have received that royal priesthood of our, 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 uh, our lips should guard knowledge and men should seek instruction from our mouth. For we are the messenger of the Lord of hosts. That is part of all of our calling as Christians. So now, chapter 8 and 9 of Leviticus present a detailed description of the religious celebrations marking the initiation of the formal worship in ancient Israel. As I said earlier, they serve to describe the fulfillment of what was described, what was ordained in Exodus 29, verse 1 through 37. Exodus 29, verse 1 through uh, 37. And also overlap in content with the final chapters of Exodus. Okay. Chapter 8, verse, in verses 1 and 3, again, you hear this message that all specific rituals were commanded by God. And this is, again, as the Lord has commanded Moses, to insist that it was always God who, ins- who wanted these um, rituals. And what you, you, see, you see in chapter 8 is the consecration of two things, which are related. First, the consecration of the altar and tabernacle, and then... And of Aaron, the high priest. The altar and tabernacle. Then of Aaron, the high priest. That's one. And then the ordination of Aaron and his sons as priests. Accomplished by the Caesar sacrificial and purificatory rites. Performed over a period of seven days. Seven days. And then there are witnesses. The congregation must witness that this is taking place. They need to see that that man is now consecrated. Right? We have to have witnesses. It's not something done separately. So today... Um, we, we, we hope that uh, the, the next, the next um, change that could be brought into the, um, the, the Latin Rite calendar, which is actually a very simple change and doesn't require a lot of um, uh, procedures, would be to replace ordinary time with a liturgical time. Because there's nothing worse for us than to hear ordinary time. Because it takes us away from the liturgical life of the church. Now in the Maronite rite, and probably in the Chaldean rite, there is no ordinary time. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right? You guys don't have ordinary time. You're not sure. Find out. I want to ask you next week. That will be a test. Well, I, I know. There is in the Roman rite ordinary time. And it's the majority, the bulk of the year. There is no such thing in the Maronite calendar. We don't have ordinary time. So when we start the year in November, what do we begin with? Those of you who attend the, the Maronite church, what do we start with? What is that? What do we do in the Sunday of the church? 
Four corner and, and the, altar. the altar. Here you go. Back exactly to the beginning. We consecrate the church, and the next Sunday is what? What do we consecrate the next Sunday? The people. The people. Right? The people are consecrated. And then we enter into the season of preparation for, for the birth of Jesus, right? And then it continues. We go through the birth of Jesus. We enter in the season of Epiphany, which leads us to the season of Great Lent. Then we have the season of the uh, Holy Week. And after that, we have the season of Easter. And after the season of Easter, we have the season of the cross. Uh, Pentecost, I'm sorry. And after Pentecost, we have the season of the cross. And guess how many seasons we have? Without even counting seven. There you go. Seven. Yeah? Okay. Well, be aware of it. Be aware of what season you live because it has, it helps you understand that covenantal life you live in. You're always in the covenant. You're never taken away from it. Yes. No, no, no. no, no. I said, I am wishing for, let me be very, very clear. I am wishing for, I'm praying that the next change in the Latin rite would be the removal of ordinary time and replacing it with liturgical seasons that draw the minds and hearts of the worshipers to the liturgical time in which they're living. Ordinary time means what? We're waiting for extraordinary time? The high priest, he alone was anointed with the oil of anointing, the same oil used to consecrate the altar and tabernacle in the sacred vessels. In effect, to the Jews, the high priest was the human, listen carefully, the human counterpart to the altar. The human counterpart to the altar. Do we have that same concept today? In our Catholic faith? Oh yes, you bet. What is the altar? Yes. The human counterpart. The divine counterpart, actually. But the altar now represents Christ. Yeah? So we retain those principles, but now they have their terminal meaning. Their end meaning. The meaning that was intended by God all along. That's what that altar is. The altar was then used for the first time in a kind of a trial run. A burnt offering was sacrificed on it. And when a favorable response was received from God, the actual ordination ceremonies, which were to last seven days, could proceed. As the main event, the ram of ordination, whose blood was used to initiate the priest, was offered on the altar. Now, anointing with oil was a custom of the ancient world. Let's understand where it comes from where olive oil mixed with perfumes was used to welcome guests into someone's home. In the Middle East, it can, be, it can get very hot and very dry. Oil helps with dry skin. You perfume it to give it a nice uh, aroma. And when you have guests who come to your house, key on the imagery, when they enter your house, you receive them into your house by offering them oil. So therefore, when a priest is anointed with oil, what is intended by that? He is now a member of the household of God. Yeah? When we anoint a baby with oil, right? He is now a member of the house of God. That's what is 
meant by that gesture. So, for instance, uh, as an example, Homer gives, uh, not Simpson, the author, gives an example in the uh, Odyssey when King Nestor's youngest daughter provided olive oil to Telemachus, who's one character in that sorry story. So, therefore, an anointed priest meant that he was now the house of God. Now, in chapter 9, after an introduction, we have description of the ritual for the eighth day, and Moses plays a key role. He who issues the, the detailed instructions for the performance of various rites. It's interesting that you have seven days and then the eighth. There's yet one more ritual on the eighth day. And this is where the letters of Hebrew keys off that eighth day. And becomes Sunday. The eighth day. right? Because as St. Paul says, God, and in fact Christ himself says, My father is still at work and so am I am at work in response to when the Pharisees tell him, why are you doing work? Why are you curing on the Sabbath? Because he's still at work. The work was not finished. Original sin left the work undone. It was completed on the eighth day, which became the true day of rest. Because there, in a sense, creation was made complete with the resurrection of Christ. And it's already foreshadowed in the book of Leviticus for that eighth day celebration. And there is no clear um, description or understanding from a Jewish sense. Because it was veiled. You needed the resurrection of Christ on Sunday to make sense of that one particular uh, celebration. The, what's really interesting is that um, the, these celebrations in chapter 9, as is described, they celebrate the entry of God's presence into the newly consecrated tabernacle, an earthly residence for the God of Israel. The Hebrew, Mishkan, which in Arabic we have as Maskan, right? same exact word, right? um, meant, is translated tabernacle, and it meant tent, but it derives from the verb shakan, to dwell, reside, which is the Arabic word, verb sakan. Right? So the tabernacle, that we have in our churches is the Mishkan, the Maskan. It's the place where God resides. Right? I mean, oftentimes, sometimes we use these terms and we add mystery to them when mystery should not be added. So the word tabernacle sounds mysterious. But truly, that is the place where God dwells. And that's, that part is all there is to it. The real mystery is the fact that God is dwelling there. Right? So I suppose by extension, the mystery involves the whole thing. Right? How could God be dwelling there? It, it is a true mystery. And then sometimes we Catholics don't express that mystery in our lives because of the way we behave before it. Our behavior says a lot about our belief. Right? So if you're walking in Latin church and you get to in front of the tabernacle and you genuflect like uh, you have a, uh, a bouncy ball at the end of your knee, are you really expressing mystery? Right? Or if you are in the Latin rite, of any of the Latin rites, you stop by it and all you do is you kind of uh, um, do a yo-yo with your head, mm-hmm. are you truly expressing a mystery? I just would love it if sometimes your kids would do that to you. Just walk by you, look at you and go, hmm, and keep on walking. That's it. I'd like to know how you would feel about that. 
All right. So, the interesting thing is that the Temple of Jerusalem later on would use the word Beit. No longer Mishkan, but Beit. The difference is that Mishkan is a dwelling. Beit means a home where you live. It means also the house, as in the house of two doors. Right? That's the meaning of Beit. Because we say, oh, he's from Beit so-and-so, right? We mean the whole lineage of that family. So that's also what's meant by house. So what is implied in there is that you're, if you enter this house, you're entering not just God's dwelling place, you're entering the house where all the people of God dwell. You're entering the church. That's what the church is. The church is a bait. Right? That's what happened when the temple is erected. Okay. Now, when they do the consecration... As the presence of God was welcomed into the tabernacle, into that tent, extreme care had to be exercised to protect it from impurity. Both the priests and the people, represented on this occasion by the elders, offered their respective sin offerings an indication that the tabernacle existed for the benefit of all, not solely for the priesthood. But everybody offered a sin offering as soon as it was consecrated to protect it from any impurity. They exercise extreme care in God's presence. Right? And I'm, I'm always reminded, always reminded, it's very striking, a little uh, anecdote between the uh, Chaldean bishop and a taxi driver. The bishop was coming back from the airport and driven to, um, the, the, to, the, to, the, um, uh, to St. Peter's here in San Diego uh, by a taxi driver who happened to be Muslim. So they entered in this conversation, God presents, and the bishop was explaining to him that in the church, God is present. And they got to the door, and the door was open. And the Muslim driver peered in and saw the tabernacle all the way in the end. He said, you mean to tell me that God is in that box over there? And the bishop said, yep, that's true. And the taxi driver looked around and said, I don't believe it. He said, why? He says, because if I believed, if I believed that God was in that box over there, I'd go out from the taxi, and I'd lick the ground. From here all the way to inside. Think about that. Okay. So once the purifi- purificatory sacrifices were completed and the first Allah offered, the sacred gifts of greeting were placed on the altar in celebration of the dedication of the altar and tabernacle. The people received the blessing and God's presence appeared before them. Miraculously, the altar fire was ignited to consume the sacred gifts of a greeting. Somebody asked me where the fire came from. That's where it came from. Right? No one lit that initial fire. It was ignited. Right? Because God is the one who says, I accept this offering and I make this my, my house, my dwelling, my presence. So clearly, in the tabernacle, there was gradation of sanctity. I think you got that. From the outer part of the tent all the way to the Holy of Holies. There's this gradation of sanctity. The closer you get to the inner chamber, the higher the sanctity of the place becomes, right? And so it is in our churches. There's a gradation of sanctity. And if nothing else, if nothing else, but out of respect for the... um, for the function of the priest, if nothing else, out of respect for the function of the priest, 
we should refrain from stepping on the, in, in the, in the um, uh, sanctuary. We should not go there. Because it helps us to, re, it, it helps remind ourselves and our bodies who we are standing in front of, who, are we standing in front of whom, right? And who we are and who God is. And when God chooses a man to become a priest, it is a true privilege that he gives him to serve him in the sanctuary. And if you make the sanctuary um, sort of a tea house where anybody goes up, anybody comes down, we lose, we lose that distinction. And when we lose that distinction, we run the risk of disrespecting Christ and his priests. So, it's something to be mindful of as you enter the church. Right? As you enter the church. Now, it's really hard these days because of how Catholics behave inside churches, but it's a good thing to remind yourselves of. Now, back then, it was completely forbidden. I mean, back then, it was absolutely clear. Uh, lay folk were to enter all the way through, he'd be put to death. That would be, that, that would be it. Okay? That'd be it. Right? And, we, and they didn't have God Almighty present. They didn't have any of this. But it was just... Now, obviously, in our case, things have changed. We are allowed inside the tent. We're not violating law. By our baptism, we are allowed. We're children of God. But if we're children of God, it doesn't necessarily mean we should trash the place. Right? And so, obviously, the way we dress... Hmm? Walking to the church with loafers, you know, jeans, torn clothes, right? Revealing clothes, all of that. Think about that. Right? Something to keep in mind and think about when you enter the church, right? Okay. Okay. Here's the interesting thing to note also. Um, in chapter 6 of verse 8, Moses washed them with water. Mo- Moses did that, right? Ibn Ezra, who is a, a, um, a commentator, indicates that the formula to wash the body refers to bathing. But the verb that was used there to indicate washing meant only the hands and feet. So Moses washed only the hands and feet of Aaron and the other men he was consecrating as priests. Okay? So if anybody had doubt that when Christ instituted the Eucharist, instituted a priesthood, point them out to this little fact. He washed the hands and feet of the apostles to indicate the institution of a priesthood. And they understood that. Probably were flabbergasted by it. I didn't understand what was going on. Right? Probably understood less than Aaron did, but that's what he was doing. That's why we celebrate that great feast on the Thursday, because it is truly the institution of the priesthood. Uh, it's unfortunate that we only insist on the humility of Christ. It's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. We insist on it. He washed the hands and feet of his. It was great, beautiful. Right? But because of the kind of misunderstanding, we have women up there 
So we get the priest to wash the feet of the woman, which is a complete um, misinterpretation of what's going on. We have plenty of occasions to celebrate Christ's humility. Don't get me wrong. That's not one of them. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, because, because, because in many ways in our church we're still protected from all of this. But be, believe you me, it does happen. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it does. Because, you know, Christ takes care of everybody, the poor and everything, so that's what we're going to do. Well, wonderful, yes. But you're missing the intent. It's not about the humility of Christ, but the institution of the priesthood. Here's one example where understanding the Old Testament, understanding Leviticus, makes you aware of what is going on. You understand what this gesture means. And oh, by the way, for those of you who may be tempted to rail and criticize and complain about the priests... Not that it happens to anybody. But if you are tempted by this notion, which is inspired by the devil, by the way, right? remember this and meditate on it. Christ knew with complete knowledge who was going to betray him. And he allowed that betrayer to still be with him through a good chunk of that evening. Not all of it, but a good chunk of it. I'm not talking, by the way, I am not, I don't mean by that to say that the priest is doing something wrong, that you just shouldn't do anything about it. That's not what I'm saying. If the priest is doing something wrong, it is absolutely your right to go and speak with him respectfully, alone, and point something out to him. If he doesn't want to hear you, and you, if he's doing something wrong, you have every right to write to the bishop, respectfully. What I'm talking about is going out in the court and complaining to everyone and anyone about your priest. That's what I'm talking about. And giving ear to others who are complaining about the priest. Yeah? So... Um, just keep that in mind. Anyways, that's an important element here in this ceremony which Christ had, had acquired and changed into something much more powerful on that Holy Thursday. And in fact, the really interesting thing is that the rabbinic idiom for this rite is called the Kiddush Yadayim Warijlain, which, exactly, legs, I mean, there's a funny thing going on here in, in, in the Semitic languages which non-Semitic people get our case for, because if my leg is hurting me anywhere, I'll say, my, what do we say in English then? My foot. My foot is hurting me. And when we say, if my arm is hurting me anywhere, what do we say? My hand. Because those are the words we use for the whole part. Right? And this is why when you, when you know that it, when they say they nailed they put nails in his hand. It doesn't imply hand, as in English. Because the Semitic language means anywhere on the arm is the hand. Okay? So my wife has a lot of fun with that. Oh, my foot is hurting me. Where? I show my thigh. All right. Okay, so what I would like to do now for the, the time that is left is... Um,
go a little bit with you because there, there is a whole description of the clothes of the priest, how he's clothed. So I thought it could be, it's useful for us to understand a little bit more how a priest, a Catholic priest, is clothed. What are the parts of the clothing he has put on? They're very similar, actually, to the Maronite clothing. They could be different from, the, from churches that are more inspired from the Orthodox side of the house. But overall, it kind of applies. So, the vestment of the Roman rite priest. First, the amice. The amice is the, is a, is, this is how you say it, right? Yeah, okay, good. Is a piece of white linen, rectangular in shape, with two long cloth ribbons. The priest places it on his neck, covering the clerical collar, and then ties it by crisscrossing the ribbons in his front to form a St. Andrew's cross, bringing them around the back, around the waist, and, and tying them in a bow. The practical purpose of the amnesty is to conceal the normal clerical clothing. So that's the first thing he puts on, right? Okay. Um, and to absorb any perspiration from the head and the neck. The spiritual purpose is to remind the priest of St. Paul's admonition, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And the former vesting prayer, which these days apparently they don't say anymore, is place, O Lord, the helmet of salvation on my head to resist the attacks of the devil. So as the priest is, getting, is, is being vested, that's the prayer he would say before. Then the alb. The alb is a long white garment which flows from shoulders to ankles and has long sleeves extending to the wrists. And alb means white. The spiritual purpose reminds the priest of his baptism when he was clothed in white to signify his freedom from sin, purity of new life, and Christian dignity. And also to remind himself of the saints in the book of Revelation where it is said, chapter 7, verse 14, these are the ones who have survived the great period of trial. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In the same way, the priest must offer the Mass with purity of body and soul. And the prayer that he used to say was, Make me white, O Lord, and purify my heart, so that being made white in the blood of the Lamb, I may deserve an eternal reward. Then you have the cincture. And that is, the, it's a long, thick cord with tassels at the ends, which secures the alb around the waist. And you've seen it on the priest, right? And the spiritual man, meaning of this is the admonition of St. Peter. So gird the loins of your understanding, live soberly, set all your hope on the gift to be confirmed on you when Jesus Christ appears as obedient sons, do not yield to the desires that once shaped you in your ignorance. Rather, become holy yourselves in every aspect of your conduct, after the likeness of the Holy One who called you. That's in 1 Peter 1, 13, 15. And the prayer was, Gird me, O Lord, with the cincture of purity, and extinguish in my heart the fire of concupiscence, so that the virtue of continence and chastity, always abiding in my heart, I may better serve thee. Then comes the stole. The stole is a long cloth about four inches wide and of the same color as a, of the, as a chasuble that is worn around the neck like a scarf. It, it, it's of ancient origin. Rabbis wore prayer shawls with tassels as a sign of their authority. The stole reminds the priest not only of his authority and dignity as a priest, but also of his duty to preach the word of God with courage and conviction. 
And the prayer was, Restore unto me, O Lord, the stole of immortality, which I lost through the sin of my first parents. And although unworthy to approach thy sacred mystery, may I nevertheless, may I nevertheless attain the joy to joy eternal. And then the chasuble, that's how we say it, right? Finally, this outer garment worn over the alp and stole, uh, it comes from the Latin word casula, which means house. And it was like a cape that was used to protect uh, someone from inclement weather. And spiritually, it reminds the priest of the charity of Christ. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds the rest together and makes them perfect. Colossians 3.14 And the former vesting prayer was, O Lord, who has said, My yoke is sweet, my burden is light, grant that I may so carry it as to merit thy grace. So in all, the vestments in the Mass have twofold, two purpose. They signify the role proper to each person who has a special part in the rite, and they help to make the ceremonies beautiful and solemn. And that came from the General Instruction Roman Missal, number 297. Moreover, the vestments inspire the priests and all the faithful to meditate on their rich symbolism, if they knew what they meant, obviously. Back then, the high priest wore the Urim and Thummim when he entered the tent, thereby calling attention to his oracular function. Uh, today, we have bishops and we have uh, cardinals and the pope that wear the ring and hold to the uh, staff of authority and wear also the... Um, the mitre, right? And the mitre, um, so the, the, obviously the ring is a royal ring of authority that comes from the kingdom of David. The staff is the staff of the shepherd who leads. And the mitre is what? It's the power of God. Because the mitre is really shaped as two horns. It's two horns, right? The horn, remember, the horn isn't just about Satan. Satan liked to describe himself with two horns because horns in the ancient time, were represented what? Power. It comes from the hippo. Right? The, the hippo was a mighty animal and had horns. So the horn came, became associated with the hippo and then from there took on the notion of power. Hence, Michelangelo, when he did the statue of Moses, did it with Moses having two horns. Right? The mitre is that. Okay? Tusks. Hippos. Tusks. Back then, it was horns. So the word used was horn. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Well, then there's the horn to blow. It was called, yeah, but those, you end up in trumpets. The horns, even though it's called a horn, but it's really a trumpet. And the trumpets have a whole significance to it. Yeah. All right. Then after Aaron was consecrated, the sons of Aaron were also consecrated. Now, I won't necessarily go through the details the consecration of the priest was like that of the high priest, but lesser. The sacrifice was smaller, and then some of the steps that were done for the high priest were skipped when, it came, when, it, when, when the consecration of the priest took place. So um, what is important for us is that it, God, it is God who instituted that priesthood, that Levitical priesthood, right? Through Moses. He was the one who desired it, and he wanted it, and he created the office of the priest to be a channel back then of the law. Then when Christ came, Christ could have, Christ took away the Levitical priesthood because the temple was destroyed. 
And without that temple, there, are, there is no sacrifice to offer. Hence, the whole priesthood stopped. The whole Levitical priesthood was completely stopped. He could have not replaced it with another priesthood. He could have given all of us back the right to offer sacrifice. You understand? He could have done that. Why did he institute a new priesthood and not give all of us that power to celebrate the Eucharist in our homes? To distinguish between the old and the new? No, it would be a great distinction if he did this because the old was the Levitical priesthood. So if you take away the priesthood and give it to everybody, right? He could have. I mean, he had, he had full authority Full authority to change this. He could have given it to every man and woman. He could have done that. Why didn't he? Okay, minister Zachary. He could have given us the authority to do that. We could have given, you know, we could have been hearing our confessions. You know, he's God, right? The liturgy and the sacraments are his ways of transmitting grace. Therefore, he could have chosen whichever way he wanted. Why did he? Establish the new priesthood. Representation of the family? How so? Maybe, but I don't think representation of the family is the key idea here. Yes. To keep obedience, yes. There could be other ways to keep obedience also. Yes. The new creation. He could have done, he could have instituted this new creation without a liturgical priesthood. Because there's still something we need to learn. Okay, we're getting closer. Yes. Yes, I mean, he chose the apostles so that he could offer himself. Agree, but why did he do that? Remember, it's not a question of worth. It's not a question of how, what was their worth. Because if it was a question of worth, right, he could have picked his mom. Right? It's not a question of worth. Here's why. The sacrifice that Jesus uh, underwent... He did it once and for all. Once and for all doesn't mean one time only. That's not the intended meaning. It means once and for all. For everyone. Through time. Yeah? He needed a way to communicate the graces of that sacrifice through time. Hmm? So, he needed us, through every generation, to understand, to accept, and to live the faith. And so, he chose, and continues to choose, men to stand in his place. To reenact for us his life. So we may believe and come to be saved. Because we're not saved through a book. We're saved through the church. That's why he did it this way. It's human psychology. In fact, in the scriptures, when he speaks to the woman at the well, she goes and she tells the people in the village. And they believe her. Three days later, after Jesus stayed with them for three days, they tell her, we no longer believe because you told us. Right? It's human psychology. 
It's hard to believe based on hearsay. You need to experience. You need to live. You need to um, be touched by grace to believe. That's why he did it this way. So there will be no confusion. That man standing out there, that man is standing in place of Christ. When I look at him, I see Christ. So there will be no confusion why he did it. That's why he established this priesthood. So that we can continually be reminded of what he did for us and be touched by his grace through men. But he didn't reserve the channels of grace to men. Right? He did not. We know that by all the, 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 the saints who are women. So it's not the intent here, but the intent is to constantly remind us of his sacrifice, constantly remind us that he's the one who's feeding us, constantly reminding us of what he did for us. Do this in remembrance of me. Anamnesis, which means almost like somebody who regains his memory that he lost. Amnesia is, has the root word of nesis in there. Anamnesis is when you take it away and you remember. That's why. Right? Incidentally, I'm just going to close with this, but it's an important fact because we're getting closer to Holy Week and institution of the Eucharist. I wanted to ask you this question. Why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? Pardon? Yeah, it is New Covenant, but why the Eucharist? Why did he institute the Eucharist? Why the bread and the wine? Why? Yes. True, but why do it this way? See, there must be a real reason for it. Yes. So, Pardon? We can have it with us. Yes, you're closer to it. But why do we have to have it with us, in us? Absolutely true. This offering replaces all the animal sacrifices and does away with them. But why do we have to eat him? Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What does that mean? Yes, the bread represents life. But why did he do that? Why, why is it that you need to eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood to have life in you? Here's why. Listen carefully. Look, the faith is mysterious in one sense, but in another sense, it beautifies the reason. It, it sheds light in our reason for us to glorify God. So therefore, the reasons that we must give cannot be kind of lofty and mysterious. They must be explainable and understandable. Here's why. Let me ask you this question. Do you agree that all those who are in heaven are called children of God? Yes? You're with me on that? Yes. You agree? Yes. Okay. I got a trap and you fell in it. I'm going to show you why. What do you call the children of a frog? Very good. And the children of dogs? Okay. Can a dog have a giraffe as a child? Why not? Same. They don't have the same nature, right? Yeah? Dogs begets dogs. And cats... And cows, come on, come on, say it, say it, say it, yeah, yeah. Humans, okay, so can you have a dog as your kid? Because it's the same, it's a different nature, right? You don't share the same nature, yes? You're with me? Okay, let me ask you this question again. Are the, 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 the saints in heaven the children of God? Yes? What is their nature? No, no, wait, 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 wait. What is their nature? Do you, do you become angels when you go to heaven? No. Thank you. You're human. Do you cease being human in heaven? 
Ah, we're getting closer, right? You don't become angels, do you? Okay, very good. What is the nature of God? Divine. How could God? Wait, wait, wait. God, right? No, God, the Holy Trinity. The nature of the Holy Trinity is what? Divine. We are human. How could we be children of God? Ah, that's why. Christ is, what does he have? You see how important this is? Two natures, divine and human. It's a mystery. And what does he do in the Eucharist? We receive what? Body and blood is what? That refers to what part of his human nature? Soul and divinity? Divinity. What are you receiving? Two. Why do you receive those things? Because he wraps his divinity into something that our body can consume, our soul can consume. To do what? To divinize us. That's why. The Eucharist is not optional. That's what prepares you to become truly children of God. Because in God, in heaven, you will be like God. Meaning what? You won't have two natures, but your human nature will be what? Divinized. That's what we call the supernatural life, modern language. The, ch- the, 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 the fathers of the church spoke of the divine nature. You understand? That's why the Eucharist is essential. That's why he did it. Yes. Yes, so there are two images here. The first one is the human image. We're made in his image in a human sense. We have reason. As you go to Mass, celebrate the liturgy, and receive the Eucharist, you're made into his image the second time over. You're becoming divinized. You're becoming ready to be a child of God. That's why he created, that's why he instituted the Eucharist. That's the reason why. Yes. Oh, absolutely, if you receive instead of grace. The whole thing is about being pure and clean and all of that, right? That Absolutely, absolutely. Receiving him worthily. Well, assuming you're in a state of grace... And assuming there are no temporal punishment due to sin, you go to, straight to heaven. Right? Yes, absolutely. That's the power of the Eucharist. Yeah? Yes. Oh, totally. Very good question. We're, we're divinized, we're not God, right? Yes. Fundamentally, divinized meaning we become like God. We share in His life, in His divine life. But we're not subsistent beings. If God would cease to think about us, we're gone. Yeah? So the way to describe it would be that right now we're running on poor diesel. It's really dirty. We pollute the, uh, the, the environment. Then somebody comes in and takes the diesel engine and puts it in completely clean um, solar-powered energy. Now you're running on the sun. right? So in a sense, let's say you have now a fusion engine in you. right? So the mini sun. You're like the sun. You share something with the sun. But if that engine is taken away, you're gone. Right? So you're not subsistent being. You don't exist on your own. You still depend of God. Uh, You're still completely and totally dependent on God to sustain you. That's the fundamental difference. Right. Oh, absolutely. But you're sharing in the life of God. You are like Him. You're sharing in His divine life. So there's a divinization of the human. I mean, that's why when they, Jesus came, but they didn't recognize him. 
If you see Mother Teresa now, we will not recognize her. Just no way. You understand? Yeah. Yes. The way I, I, I describe it, yes, I don't use the image of a charger because it, it's not complete. It's a good image, but it's not complete. The better way to think of it is that your soul is like a supernatural tree. And you need to keep on watering it for it to grow. And the water you give it, the water of life, is the Eucharist. What happens to a tree if you stop watering it? It dies. It's the same thing. That's it. Here's the vine. You're the branches. So, exactly. In that image, you have everything. Because in order to be a branch of the vine, the branch has to share the same nature as the vine. But the branch is not the vine. You cut it away, it dies. So, there you go. That's why I use that image. Yes. No, the, na- the human nature is the fact that we have an intellect. That's what defines the human nature. We have an intellect, and therefore we're made an image of God because we can think, we can form thoughts, right? And we can apply to the world. That is the human nature. That's it. Simple as that, right? In the human nature, you have other faculties which serve the intellect and allow the intellect to form the true judgment and hence power the will to do what is supposed to be right because then the will would be powered by love, and tend to the good. When we fail, the, the, the appetites, the faculties in the human nature were disrupted. No longer was rationality in the foref- forefront, passions took over. Therefore, concupiscence is nothing more than disordered passions that take over and torque the reason to do what is not right. Okay? Christ comes and says, I will restore that order through the, the covenantal graces that I'm going to give you, I'll help you live a human life, but I'm going to give you more. I'm going to take that human life right, and give you a gift, which is my own life. He could have very well come here and just saved us from original sin and allowed us to be restored to what Adam and Eve had and live on earth happily. And that would be very good. But he went all the way and he said, no, I'm going to give you my own life. So that is the gift of Christ. Hence, in heaven, what you have is a superman in the real sense of the word. That's why we are fascinated by the character Superman, because he's really tending towards what we're going to be in heaven. You understand? Okay. The saints are human, absolutely human, but divinized. So therefore, we live of the same mystery of God. How can we be human and divinized at the same time? We have... We have some idea, we have some inkling of understanding, but like St. Paul says, now we see darkly as through a glass. But then we will see clearly. Yeah. All right? Yes. Oh. Yes. You're just like an angel when you die, you go up to heaven. That is an expression that comes straight from the Gospels when the Pharisees are asking, they come to him and they test Jesus over the resurrection because a man had a woman... No, a man had seven brothers. He married once he died, so his brother married, and, and so on and so forth. So all men died, right, which is ludicrous. And then in heaven, whose wife shall she be? Because all of them are there. That's when he tells them, in heaven, they do not, are not given in marriage, nor do they marry, for they be like angels. What he meant isn't that we're ceased to be human. What he meant is that humans in heaven have the same abilities of the angelic society. Two angels in heaven. Angels are de- different species. So that's where it completely breaks down. Each angel is a species on its own. Angels do not reproduce. 
So they created separate species. No two angels are the same. So how can they share anything? Right? They have a communion that is very strong through their spirit. Right? So just as, like, for instance, we embrace our bodies touch, in that case, their spirits touch. It's very powerful. So what he's saying in heaven is this. Look, in heaven, there was a question asked at one point. If you're in heaven, if you're in heaven, can you have sex in heaven? Yes, of course you can. You absolutely can. You're human. God is not going to kind of leave a part out. See, that's, that's a Puritan, Puritanic thought. Ooh, this is... Ye- no, no, God created this. Yes. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. I, I'm not done. It's going to be even... It's going to shock you even more. Yes, you can. Your faculties are complete, yeah? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Your faculties are complete. I ask, can you? Can you? After the resurrection, when your body's risen, can you have sex? Absolutely you can. Exactly, you can. Wait, wait. There's no marriage. So who can you have sex with? Oh, no, no, no. Anybody. Anybody. See, we have, yeah, in that sense, the Muslims had something right going on there. Right? But they missed. They do. They do. Absolutely. That's actually a really good basis of conversation with them. But they missed something essential, which we're going to get to. Can you? Yeah, absolutely. Is something wrong with sex? Nothing's wrong with sex. Sex is absolutely clean. Holy and pure. Sex is the prayer of the body. That's Catholic teaching on sex. We are infected with Puritanic thoughts. Oh, it's dirty. No, it's not. Always remember what John Paul II said. The problem with pornography isn't that it shows too much. The problem is that it shows too little. That's the problem. But that's fine. But in heaven, (laughs) it'll be very different. Right? Absolutely, you're going to get longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, in heaven, you, you are going to be at the summit of beauty and capacity. You're not going to be old in heaven. There's no old. Yeah? Can you? Yes. With whom? With everybody. So why don't you? Here's why. It's not because it's bad or it's yucky or it's off. No, not at all. Here's the question. Today, can any one of you eat a lollipop? Here. Do you? Because you can't? No. Because there are better things to eat. Yeah? Okay. So therefore in heaven, you can achieve a much powerful, a way more powerful union with someone else than using the sexual mean. That's back to being like angels. The union you're going to experience and the ecstasy that comes from it is way more powerful. So essentially in heaven, sex is like having a... 14.4 14.4 baud modem. That means your connection to the internet is, uh, yeah, is, is very slow. A web page takes an hour to load. Okay? How do I know? It's, it's, uh, it's uh, logic that dictates because sex, sex is a human faculty. The restriction to, be, to have a relationship with one woman at a time on earth is only for earth, not for heaven. That faculty is fully operational in heaven because what God gives, he doesn't take away. He perfects. Hence, it be perfected in heaven. Therefore, it is possible because it is good. Sex is good. Sex is not bad. You're with me, right? Therefore, whatever is good will be good in heaven and even better. 
The only thing, though, that in heaven, the union of souls will give you a, 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 the, the pleasure and the ecstasy you receive from it is beyond imagination. I mean, if we had it today, we'd die. Our bodies aren't equipped. We cannot take on so much pleasure and joy. We just can't. So if you had that, why would you use such a primitive means, so to, so to speak, right, comparatively speaking, to that? That's why you wouldn't. That's the only reason. Yes, there's some better means of union. And then imagine have, being united with the divinity. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, we can't even understand what that means. You see why? Okay. We shouldn't make fun to begin with because that's an occasion. First of all, God is not pleased when we make fun. Right? Right? Because we are ignorant in so many ways. And should somebody make fun of us because we're ignorant? Right? That's number one. Number two, we should recognize that they have a part of the truth. And if we understand our faith, we can use that part of the truth to explain to them our faith and make them see that the Christian understanding of heaven is so much superior to the Muslim understanding of heaven. And what we're promised so much greater than what they think we're promised. That's what we should do. Yes. You're going to get, on, on, after the second judgment, you will get a glorified body. The glorified body has a number of properties, one of which is um, that you will appear at the apex of beauty and youth. Right? It doesn't matter if you died, you're 90 or you're 3. That's how you will, that's what you will body look like. It will never suffer from hunger, from thirst, from disease, from sickness. It will never suffer from any of that, and it will shine like the sun. So, for instance, one question is what I ask, what do people in heaven, are people in heaven naked? Well, think about that. If they're not naked, where do the clothes come from? You have a seamstress up there? Right? Well, of course, we, now we don't have bodies after now. But at the second resurrection, your body... We believe in the resurrection of the dead. What does that mean? The bodies are up. You're going to be re- You're going to be human. Yeah. It's a profession of the faith. So hold on. So are they naked in heaven? Well, in one sense, yes, they are. But in the other sense, the glow, the glow of their glory clothes them in things that look like clothing that is beyond our imagination. It is so beautiful. It'll just will take our breath away. It's amazing what we... But purify our thoughts, please. Don't allow Puritanism to enter into your head and, and think that some of these faculties are, are, are dirty. They're not. We protect them because they're beautiful. They're holy. Just as we protect the church, we should protect our sexuality because it's a beautiful gift of God. The sexual act is a prayer. It's a prayer of the body. It gives glory to God. A man and a woman united in a sexual act are praying. Don't take it from me. John Paul II. Completely. Intimacy of two souls. Absolutely. Yes. The beauty of the other. The joy of the other. The magnificent creation that God made in the other is before us and we can experience it in an intimate way that is beyond our understanding today while still having a body. But that's what it means to be like angels. It's a much more richer meaning than, oh, you're going to be a little spirit floating around with bare wings. Yeah? 
Yes. Um, I am, uh, I, all I can tell you is that my, my good friend Franklin reminded me of this, that some years ago I was reading about him when he was an Archbishop of uh, Buenos Aires, and the only thought that came to my mind was, I wish he becomes a Pope. So uh, I'm, I am, uh, I'm very happy that he was elected a Pope, but I expect a lot of confusion in the days to come because the devil is going to counterattack. So I'm expecting confusion um, in, a, in, a, in a broad scene of things, but I think he's going to, his pontificate is going to be a hallmark, like every other one we had so far. I praise God that for the past 120 years, he really gave us holy popes. Every single one of them is on his way of canonization. I mean, not yet, uh, I mean, Benedict XVI, but I'm in my head, he's already there. That's me. Yes. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll answer your first question quickly. Yes, the cross of Christ, the graces of the cross of Christ extend forward and backward in time. Because in the book of Genesis, Enoch is said to have walked with God and he was no more. Enoch is one of those who assumed, was assumed in heaven, body and soul. Yeah. Right? And yet, that was before the coming of Christ. Uh, um, Elijah is another. Right? How could it be possible? Well, the way it was possible would be like Christ saying, okay, it's like a man coming to a store and saying, okay, I'm going to buy the store. That's it. I'm buying the store in a year from now. Now, the son of this man comes to the store and wants to grab stuff without paying for them. Then the owner says, hey, you have to pay for it. Then the man says, not a problem. Put it on my bill. I'll cover for it. That's what he did. Right? So backward and forward. Absolutely. The reason why he waited is that because you find that in the book of Daniel. Right? In the book of Daniel, when the Jews were into exile, 70 day, they all knew because of the prophets that they would have to go in exile 70 years because the land had to rest a year every seven years, and they did not do that. They did not let the land lay foul, which means they did not respect the covenant. They did that, so therefore he said 70 years. Why 70 years? Because it was uh, a year in seven for... Um, forgot the details, be it as it may, for a period of time, sufficient enough to cover seven years. Seven years have gone and gone, they're still in exile. Then Gabriel is sent to, 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 to Daniel to explain to him exactly what was going to happen. And when you follow the dating and the time that he gives him, you arrive precisely at the time when Christ came. So it was at the fullness of time, of the prophetic time, so that the, the Jewish people could understand and their heart become soft and call upon the Savior so God could send him. Yeah. All right. Let's close with a prayer. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.